0: Hello and welcome to the podcast that helps you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Have you ever heard a little boy say to his dad, when I grow up, I want to be just like you? What joy those words bring to a father's heart. In the same way, it's hard for me to imagine any words that bring more joy to our Lord and Master Jesus than, I want to be just like you. This episode examines Jesus' mercy and how we can exhibit mercy in our everyday lives as He did. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode 3 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. This episode continues the series, Christ's Compelling Mission for Us. We know that Christ's mission for us is to be like Him, and that he gave a summary of his heart attitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. In past episodes, season one, episodes eight through 11, we examined the first four Beatitudes. Today we come to the fifth from Matthew 5, seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In the Roman culture of Jesus' day, mercy was considered the supreme sign of weakness. And they despised weakness in that culture. One particular philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. Mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man and a real Roman. Mercy was the opposite of what the mighty conquering Roman legions portrayed as they intimidated and conquered all who tried to stop them. Such hard-heartedness also shaped Roman homes. During much of Roman history, a father had the right of patria apetestas. As the newborn infant was held up for him to see, the father would turn his thumb up if the father wanted the child to live or down if he wanted the child to die. If his thumb turned down, the child would immediately be drowned. Citizens had the same life or death power over slaves, and husbands could have their wives put to death on the slightest provocation. Showing any pity for weakness was scorned. Mercy was equally scorned by the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. Like Inspector Javert in Les Miserables, they considered it their job to uphold a strict interpretation of God's moral law while they completely missed the deeper issues of mercy and justice. Jesus described them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In Jesus' day, the fifth Beatitudes called to mercy may have been the most radically countercultural of all of the Beatitudes. The word merciful is from the Greek word Elias, It is similar to grace. Both describe one's attitude toward a sinner, a lawbreaker, a wrongdoer. But whereas grace extends pardon from the law's penalty for sin, mercy extends relief from the pain of sin's misery. Here's a good working definition of the mercy that Christ followers are to show the world. Mercy is the compassionate response to one who is in pain because of his sin. In his Beatitudes, Jesus wants us to change the way we view the moral failures of others. The Christ follower is not to be intolerant, judgmental, condescending, angry and impatient with others' shortcomings, resentful over past wounds, hard-hearted towards those whose sins have caused their own pain, or apathetic towards those enslaved by sin. We are not allowed to close our hearts towards one who hurts us or turn our back on someone whose misery is his own fault. Let's look at a well-known story that puts Jesus' mercy on display from John 8. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground but when they heard it they went away one by one beginning with the older ones and jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him jesus stood up and said to her woman where are they has no one condemned you she said no one lord and jesus said neither do i condemn you go And sin no more. The scribes and Pharisees present the sharpest of contrasts to the mercy of Jesus. Remember, they thought they were on God's mission to stop this imposter who somehow had demonic powers from deceiving the masses into rejecting Yahweh and the law of Moses. They did not care one bit what might happen to this woman who appears to have been set up. It looks like a setup took place because the law required two eyewitnesses who saw this act take place with their own eyes, not just coming out of the same bedroom, which is one reason why execution for adultery was quite rare. The second indication that this was a planned setup is that the man caught in the act somehow got away. So let's make some observations from this story to help us in our exercise of mercy. Number one, consider the religious leaders. The rightness of their cause led them to jettison any concern for the adulteress whatsoever. They could reason, we didn't make her commit adultery. She did what God himself says is worthy of death. They were about to throw away her life like a piece of trash in the name of Yahweh. Horrible things have been done to human beings for a religious reason. And this is one of them. In fighting for biblical truth in our culture, we can never override our call to treat every human as a precious image bearer of God. The end never justifies suppressing mercy for the lost. Number two, in failing to condemn her, Jesus' mercy does not minimize her sin. He sternly commands her, go and sin no more. Being merciful does not mean a compromise of our standards, nor lessening our hatred of sin. We direct hatred, anger, and grief at the sin. We direct compassion to the victim of his or her own sin. Both are part of mercy. Number three, contrary to the thinking of the ancient Romans, Jesus' demonstration of mercy was as masculine as you can get. Adam is created to be a protector. Jesus stopped this ancient equivalent of a 20th century lynching at the cost of his own life. The scribes and Pharisees would never forget this humiliation. They would get their revenge by insisting that Pilate crucify Jesus. Number four, the reason Christ followers are merciful is that every one of us has stood in his own way where that woman stood, exposed, ashamed of our sins, and desperate for God's mercy. Every one of us knows that we have deserved death. Moreover, Jesus' biting words to the scribes and Pharisees cut to our hearts as well. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to ever throw a stone at someone who has sinned. So, mercy is the compassionate response to one who is in pain because of his or her sin. Let's consider what it looks like to exhibit mercy in three specific situations. First, when others wound us or make our lives more difficult. As we've seen, when others hurt us, our natural response is anger, impatience, verbal retaliation, withdrawal of our love or hardening our unforgiving heart. It does not default naturally to mercy. The Apostle Peter seems to have been having a tough time with Jesus' requirement for his disciples to show mercy. In Matthew 18, we read, Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So, also, my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In light of this text, here's a little four question quiz that you and I can ask ourselves to check out our mercy quotient. Number one, what's your attitude toward the imperfections of the incompetent store clerk, the coworker who doesn't carry his load, the driver who is talking on his cell phone instead of driving? Or anyone else who inconveniences you or exposes you to danger? Number two, is your family a place where grace is in place? Where you set high standards but repeatedly stress that it's okay to fail? When was the last time you confessed one of your sins to your family? Number three, how do you feel about your mate's deficiencies? Especially the ones that hurt you or you have to make up for. Number four. How quick are you to forgive? Is there any lingering resentment that's harming a relationship? Very imperfect people have no right to demand perfection from anyone else. The second situation that calls for mercy is the discipline of our kids. Mercy requires disciplining our children with both firmness and empathy. Let's think carefully about parenting and mercy. Remember, mercy is the compassionate response to one who is in pain because of his sin. That's the position our child is in who is facing discipline. There are two loving and merciful parts to the discipline of our children. The first is painful consequences for wrong behavior. God tells us whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 13, 24. It is cruel to enable a child to grow up having never learned self-control, thinking he is the center of the universe and expecting others to change in order to please him. Love requires teaching him that he needs to conform to the reality of the way God has designed life. That is the definition of mature character. So the first requirement of merciful parenting is firm boundaries. Without them, we will raise a child who suffers horribly because he is so self-centered. But the second part to merciful discipline is equally important, and that is empathy for the pain he experiences because of his sinful nature, just as you do. If we don't empathize with his pain, our discipline of him will drive him away because it feels harsh and uncaring. We need Jesus to spank us, but we also need him to be our high priest who empathizes with our pain. Healthy discipline requires filling both roles. Now, this balance is tough because by temperament, we tend to either lean toward too much empathy and over-identifying with the child, therefore hurting her through our lack of firmness, or being firm in the boundaries but failing to empathize with her. Here's an example of, I think, a good balance from boundaries with kids, both limits and empathy. No, Kathy, you can't go to the movies today. You have to do your chores first. That's not fair. Marsh is going. I hate your stupid rules. I know it's frustrating when you don't get to go to the movies again, but I want to go today. You don't even care. I know you're frustrated and angry. It's tough to have to work before you have fun. I feel that way, too. I hate living here. I don't ever get to do anything. I know it's hard to miss the movies when you really want to go. Well, if you know so much, then let me go. I know you want to. It's tough. But the answer is no. But if I miss this one, there won't be another sneak preview this summer. That's sad. It's a long time until next summer. I can see why you hate missing it so much. So effective discipline requires empathy, but not so much that we give in. Boundaries need to be firm. The third situation that requires a response of mercy is encountering those who are suffering the painful consequences of sin, their own or others. One with Jesus' heart of mercy cannot walk by hurting people and ignore their suffering. In the midst of Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, we read, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, Think of it. This is the city that in less than a week would inflict upon Jesus the most barbaric, excruciating torture ever invented, crucifixion. This crime against God the Son would be so ugly, so vile, so repugnant that the citizens of the city and their children would be justly destroyed. Yet Jesus' compassion for them as he foresaw the horrible pain that would one day befall them in judgment, wrenched open his heart, causing tears. He could not keep walking and ignore that suffering he foresaw. If we are to exhibit Jesus' mercy, we need to recover mercy ministry as a regular part of our lives. Tim Keller's book, Ministries of Mercy, The Call of the Jericho Road, is transforming the Bible-believing church in America, Keller challenges believers to look around them and find ways to display mercy to the poor, to the homeless, the hungry, those whose lives are destroyed by addictions. He challenges all Christians to follow the model of the Good Samaritan, writing, Why would someone, like the Good Samaritan, risk his safety, upend his schedule, deplete his bank balance, and become dirty and bloody to help a person of another race and social class? And why would Jesus tell us, go and do likewise? The Good Samaritan didn't ignore the battered man on the Jericho Road. Like him, we're aware of people in need around us, the widow next door, the family strapped with medical bills, the homeless man outside our church. God calls us to help them, whether they need shelter, assistance, medical care, or just friendship. Caring for those people is the job of every believer as fundamental to Christian living as evangelism, discipleship, and worship. I want to close with a challenge to all of us to open our hearts to those who are spiritually mangled, disfigured, repugnant, and don't fit into our social class because of what sin has done to them. The challenge comes from this true story. In a Boston high society home, the phone rang and the wife picked up. On the other end of the call was her son returning from the Vietnam War. Instant joy coursed through the mom's veins. The son said, I'd like very much to bring an army buddy home with me. His mom said, Fine, invite him to stay with us for several days. We'd love to get to know him. The son said, he doesn't have a right leg. He doesn't have a right arm. He's missing his right eye, and his face is really disfigured. His mom answered, well, that's okay. He's still very welcome to come and visit us. The son said, you still don't understand. I want him to live with us, to be a part of our family. I want it to be permanent. His mom said, well, I'm not I'm not sure about, well, what about, and she heard a click and a dial tone. A couple of hours later, the same Boston phone rang. The mom picked up and heard the voice of a police sergeant from California. We have a man here who has one arm and one leg, and his ID shows he's your son. He's just taken his own life. It was too painful to ask directly, so we had to ask indirectly, am I too mangled? And marred for you to still love me? How many of those who are spiritually deformed, marred, torn up by their sin, just as you and I have been, will God bring across our paths in the coming months and years? Will we be drawn to them? Because the mercy of Jesus is reigning in our hearts. To summarize this episode, it pleases Jesus immensely that we want to be like him, and being like Jesus is at the core of our mission. The eight Beatitudes describe the heart attitudes of Jesus, the most radical of which may be the fifth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy towards those who hurt us or make our lives more difficult rises in our hearts the more we realize how far from perfection we fall and how desperately we need the mercy of God. Our kids need merciful parenting that is both firm and empathetic. Finally, Jesus' heart of mercy keeps us from walking past those who are in pain. It compels us to find ways to engage in mercy ministries taking place near us and in reaching out individually to care for those in need. That is Jesus' example. That is the legacy of the 2,000 year history of the church. For further prayerful thought, number one, in your own words, what is Jesus describing when he says, blessed are the merciful? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed form on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, we continue our series, Christ's Compelling Mission for Us by examining the sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, taking a look at how God cleanses our hearts from selfish motives. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.